0: my name is Adrian Goldberg and welcome to the Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times is what the papers don't say, what radio doesn't report and what telly doesn't tell you. This time a dismayed reaction to one of the key recommendations of the Independent Inquiry into Child Sexual Abuse commissioned by Theresa May in 2014 after the Jimmy Savile scandal and which has now finally completed its work. The inquiry wasn't created to examine individual cases of abuse but rather the systemic failures that allowed the to happen in the first place and then be covered up. One of its key recommendations is for a law on mandatory reporting of abuse. But Tom Perry from Mandate Now, who has been one of the most ardent supporters of legislation like this, is not happy. He'll be telling us why shortly. First though, just a reminder that the Byline Times podcast is funded by subscriptions to the Byline Times, our must-read monthly newspaper, which has exclusive content that you can't access online. We can report without fear or favour because there's no shadowy oligarch telling us what to say. Our funding comes from ordinary subscribers, people like you. So if you can, please subscribe to the Byline Times. Get more details over at our website, bylinetimes.com. That's at bylinetimes.com. Welcome then to Tom Perry. So Tom, first for our listeners who don't know, what is mandatory reporting?
1: Mandatory reporting is the reporting of known and suspected abuse on reasonable grounds by people working in teaching, healthcare, sport, and other similar settings known as regulated activities. That's it. There is a penalty for failing to report, which is a fine. And the reporter is
0: protected from retribution. That's it in a nutshell. So it's really simple and straightforward. If you have reasonable grounds for suspecting child abuse, then you must report it to the appropriate authorities. And failure to report it would be an offence, which at the moment it isn't, because we see so many of these instances of institutional cover-up, but under mandatory reporting as you envisage it, if you are in one of these settings and you fail to report any suspected abuse that you have reasonable grounds to suspect that abuse, failure to do so would be against the law. Absolutely.
1: And really, the against the law bit isn't really its It is that you're supported to report it. You're supported and protected. So it's a positive law, and that's what's frequently misunderstood. And this exists in 80% of jurisdictions around the world. We're out of step with the rest of the world. And in very simple terms, the number of reports that emerge from institutions of child sexual abuse, it's not all abuse, it's child sexual abuse, because sexual abuse is a very different, it's a statutory crime. And we find that when mandatory reporting is introduced, for example, to New South Wales uh, teaching in 1987, believe it or not, to show just how far behind we are, what happened was was that the number of referrals from teachers literally overnight went from their pre-mandatory reporting position and multiplied by 2.3 times. That shows how important and effective it is. And if we're really serious about protecting children, which we have a very strange relationship with the protection of children in this country, I, I really don't quite understand where it comes from. But we're really not very good at this, to be frank, particularly around these institutions, which serve two purposes, two important purposes. And that is there is abuse that can be perpetrated within the setting because these are target-rich environments. For those with an unhealthy interest in the young, these settings are great. You've got choice. I'm sorry to be so crude about this, but that's what they offer. Choice. And you're there because you're employed by the setting. I mean, this is nirvana. You've got power, opportunity and secrecy because no one has to report out. Uh, You know, we heard the story about nurses at Stoke Mandeville Hospital telling children to pretend to be asleep if he comes around, he being Savile. There's the perfect example of reasonable grounds to report. Why on earth were nurses saying that? Well, they had reasonable grounds to suspect that Savile was abusing children but nothing was reported. They'd have probably been out of a job. And so it goes on. And that's the point to this whole thing. We are out of step. We have no law. At the moment, if a nurse witnesses a fellow member of staff raping a child, he or she is under no legal obligation to report that abuse to anyone. No crime has been committed by the member of staff.
0: And Tom, you've been campaigning for years for a law on mandatory reporting. And this report by ICSA recommends a new law of mandatory reporting. So why are you unhappy with it?
1: Well, two things. First of all, just from the top, OK, it's not just me that's been campaigning for mandatory reporting. I am the director of Mandate Now. A lot of people coalesce around Mandate Now and what we do. So there's an awful lot of people involved. And we, collectively, collectively are displeased at what has happened because the inquiry has chosen to do the absolute minimum in order to include the two words mandatory reporting. Now, what most people understand about mandatory reporting wouldn't embarrass the edge of a postage stamp. They just hear the two words and believe the two words tell them all they need to know. Oh, it's mandatory to report child abuse. No, it's not. What the inquiry has said is that it's a mandatory report in the following circumstances. Child sexual abuse, A, when the child has disclosed. Well, that happens so rarely, as we've seen, actually from within the final report itself, where Alexis J is saying it takes children on average 26 or 28 years to disclose abuse. Well, hello. And how in that case, then, is the abuse going to be stopped if it isn't disclosed until 28 years later? The answer is it's not. The next circumstance in which it's mandatory to report is when the perpetrator admits it. Well, I'm sorry, perpetrators don't queue up to admit abuse. That is just a pure nonsense. Or three, when it is witnessed. Abuse, child sexual abuse is a private act. So what difference is it going to make? And the answer is it's negligible. And we have said this very clearly on our social media thread at Mandate Now on Twitter, because the inquiry seems to have contorted itself. To use the two words, mandatory reporting, in order that it doesn't, you know, have a pile on, as it were, you have to say, well, given the evidence that they've heard at the inquiry, given the presentation by Professor Ben Matthews, who's the preeminent academic on law and uh, child protection, given the evidence that they've had from him, empirical evidence, hard data, facts, you know, not opinions, which, you know, everybody else in the room was spouting, you know, these are hard facts, Given that evidence, what has prompted the inquiry to do such a de minimis job on the matter of mandatory reporting? The answer is I simply don't know. But it appears to have been influenced by something, somebody, some organization for whom safeguarding children
0: is not uppermost in their minds. So the key distinction between the kind of mandatory reporting that you envisage and the kind that is recommended in the report is that the suspicion on reasonable grounds that you have outlined as the basis for mandatory reporting, that bit is omitted. You would actually have to witness abuse or be told directly by a perpetrator or a victim under the commission's recommendation, which as you've outlined means that we're hardly likely to see many more cases reported of child sexual abuse.
1: It is very hard to see how it is going to make any discernible difference. On a tweet that we sent out on the 22nd, we said here very clearly, and I'll just read it because it is important, It says here, unfortunately, at Inquiry CSA has gone to great lengths to ignore tried and tested models of MR from scores of comparable jurisdictions around the world, and instead proposed a monster that's entirely unnecessary, theoretically flawed, and vulnerable to practical problems. Hashtag no design. Now, that's where we are. And this was, and still remains, the most important legislative initiative that is
0: needed in this country we lag the rest of the world the reservations that you raise were raised before icsa it isn't as though you're just coming after the event and making these complaints the reservations were anticipated and were presented to the inquiry repeatedly
1: Mm -hmm. and that's the point and and you know professor ben matthews as well it is inconceivable and there are a host of other things as well because we're not just solely about mandatory reporting that's the big ticket item that the inquiry had to recommend it has done so but in a thoroughly poor fashion let's put it like that you know you hope for the moon but unfortunately what we've got is a an eighth of a plot at the edge of a garden center you know we're in a we're in a tiny tiny little bit there's very little light in this to be frank with you because It's all too easy for government to dismiss this. I was invited after Mandatory Reporting Seminar 2, and there were only two organisations invited to the two Mandatory Reporting Seminars. As part of the inquiry. As part of the inquiry, okay? And that was the Department for Education and ourselves. We were the the only people invited to both, all right? I was invited afterwards to meet the latest, you know, here today, gone tomorrow, safeguarding director at the Department for Education. Very pleasant lady indeed. It was a very pleasant meeting. We had an agenda. When I got there, I was asked, what do you think the inquiry will do as far as mandatory reporting is concerned? And I said, well, it is our opinion, that is mandate now, it is our opinion that the uh, inquiry will recommend it. Okay. And then I was asked, well, what happens if they don't? So I said, well, what happens if they don't? Their their reputation, their gossamer-thin reputation will be in ashes, okay? And they said, what do you think will happen then? So I said, well, then it comes to government. I said, and that, of course, will include you as you have the safeguarding brief. You will consider it for two years, not rushing. And then I said, you'll design a counterfeit and launch it on a naive world. And we're well on that path. So you think essentially
0: that what you predicted would happen has happened? It's on the way. And the government, of course, will have to consider the recommendations, but you think this is the path?
1: Well, it's the path that we're on. But here's the next thing I was going to, just going to tell you about uh, public inquiries. And this is uh, government data. Government only adopts or part adopts 45% of recommendations stemming from public inquiries. So that's a pretty depressing outlook, to be frank with you.
0: There is also a proposal for a new child protection authority as well. Hmm. What do you make of that? Given that we already have organisations like Ofsted, you would have thought that that's part of their remit already. Do we need another authority to ensure child protection?
1: The CPA, to be frank with you, or the child protection authority as it is, has no power. So I don't quite know why it's being suggested. This is very typical of this country. We go around creating organisations that have no power and it's it's fab. It's just the way to go. A lot of people get suckered into believing it does something. And it does the square root of absolutely nothing. Let me give you another example, if I may. OK, this was, again, part of our submission to the inquiry. I mean, you can't make this up. If you were to tell Disney Pixar of a, a plot like this, they'd send you away and say, look, you know, please, can you bring it back to Disney Pixar levels? This is ridiculous. You've got to have some element of belief about it. The Disclosure and Barring Service, which is such an important service, which so many people set so much store in, we wrote to the inquiry, directly to Alexis J. and of course the inquiry solicitor, and we pointed out the flaws in the inquiry. And we did this three weeks before we were given some information which indicated the director of the Disclosure and Barring Service, Dr. Suzanne Smith, was going to give evidence and sure enough she did. And very interestingly, the inquiry quite clearly used my correspondence or our correspondence that was sent. The question was asked, has anybody, because you see, it's mandatory. I have to tell you this. This is a kind of come as a shock to you, and I know, brace yourself, buckle up. It's mandatory for settings. So in other words, schools and the like. To return a notification to the disclosure and barring service in circumstances where Someone has left the organisation of their own volition who, if they had not done that, they would have been dismissed as a result of their behaviour towards a child. I'm sorry to use such a long sentence, but you know, safeguarding, unfortunately, in certain areas of it is complicated. Other areas is made super complicated by the ridiculous structure that we've got here at the moment.
0: you give me a long sentence. What does yes. that mean?
1: Well, if someone left because they were a risk to a child, in precisely those circumstances, had they not left, they would have been dismissed the setting is under a requirement to return a notification. The head of the setting is required to do that. So in other words, the chair of the Board of Governors of, you know, much sinking in the Marsh School is required to return a notification to the DBS saying, X left under these circumstances, blah, blah, blah. Now, this is then considered by the DBS as to whether this person should then be able to continue in education or continue under prescribed circumstances. But here's the point. The DBS was asked, doctor Stan Sairn-Smith was asked, has anybody ever been prosecuted for failing to return a notification? No, nobody. And in my letter, I did examples of people who left, who subsequently went on to abuse and no notification was returned. I mean, look, if you were to describe the safeguarding framework as it applies to these very complex institutional settings, I tell you, this is a really another world, yeah? The whole thing is a bag of bits, and it doesn't work. If you want to make it work, and someone tells me it works, then I'm going to say, congratulations, please show me how jelly can be nailed to a wall. <laughs> you can't do it. And that's where we are. It's an extraordinary situation. Government and people in government, principally the DfE, it'll go back to the DfE now, the DfE is trying to convince you that jelly can be nailed to a wall. It can't. Furthermore, if we had mandatory reporting for these complex institutional settings, the standard of safeguarding in them would improve beyond measure when accompanied by other components. So for example, here's another couple of components for you, okay? And that is that Often, when you speak to safeguarding, in inverted commas, professionals, they'll tell you a stock answer for why safeguarding isn't as good as it should be now is, oh, we need better training and better communication. I mean, it's a cliche. Honestly, really, well-educated, knowledgeable abusees about what this framework is doing and where the holes are. I mean, we just look at each other and we put an X in the bingo board that we're running on the day, which <laughs> fills up very quickly because the cliches just trip out like you wouldn't believe. Let me just tell you about training, though. There is no accreditation scheme for people who deliver training to schools and all these complex regulated activities. There's no accreditation scheme. I can be a traffic warden today and a safeguarding trainer tomorrow. Okay. the LADO, the local authority designated officer to whom referrals are meant to be made in circumstances where an adult who is employed in the school is believed to have been possibly abusing a child. This is a voluntary referral. All right. Everything is discretionary. And the school decides to take some advice on it. Okay, now that officer, the local authority designated officer, there is no national local authority designated officer training scheme. None. There's no accreditation scheme.
0: None at all. Is there anything positive to take out of the ICSA report? I would have thought perhaps the the fact that if people make a confession to... A religious figure, I know traditionally, for example, in Catholicism, the secrets of the confessional box are regarded as sacred and should not be breached, and they will not be protected. If there are disclosures made to religious figures, they will not be protected if these recommendations are accepted. Is that a positive? It might be. Only practice will tell us. I really wouldn't want to rush to stick that as a positive, to be honest with you. Okay. So is there any... Optimism we can take from this. I mean, it's a report that's taken what nearly eight years, cost 186 million pounds, had numerous submissions from organizations like yours and a whole range of organizations, and heard the voices of survivors of abuse like yourself. Is there anything positive here? Is there anything positive? Well, let me just tell you,
1: at the moment, there's a private member's bill in Parliament tabled by Baroness Tanigray Thompson, the Paralympian, that has adopted our version of mandatory reporting. We'll see how far that gets. But all the inquiry had to do was go over and take a look at that. I actually sent them a copy, uh, actually. So, so, you know, I mean, you you would have thought, and they had previous drafts of what we were proposing anyway, and I know that they've had a, a draft from Australia, which should have been taken into account. What happens now is that the government considers it the one slightly more encouraging spot on the horizon in what is pretty bleak, if I'm frank with you, is that Keir Starmer, the leader of the Labour Party, has said very clearly indeed in a documentary that he thinks mandatory reporting is a good idea and he favoured the Washington model. Well, that's great. That's a good principle. That was two days after he retired as the uh, DPP, shortly before he was in politics. The Labour Party subsequently tabled an amendment to the Serious Crimes Bill, which didn't deliver mandatory reporting. It's, again, mandatory reporting in name only, which seems to be very fashionable, it has to be said. You know, everybody's doing it. Well, certainly in this country, but not elsewhere. I'm optimistic that that was an error. I subsequently met Yvette Cooper. So contacts are going to be re-established. Because it doesn't look as though the Conservative government is necessarily going to be getting in next time around.
0: Tom, thank you very much indeed. That's Tom Perry from Mandate. Now, I'm Adrian Goldberg. You've been listening to the Byline Times podcast, funded by subscriptions to the Byline Times. If you want to take out a subscription, and I heartily recommend that you do, head over to our website, bylinetimes.com. That's at bylinetimes.com. Thank you to Tom. Thanks very much indeed for listening. I'll see you again soon. Bye now.